Well, I'd like to tell you a little story from our past. Uh, years ago, um, Karen and I, when we were uh, first married, and uh, my sister um, Ruth uh, visited, um, we went for a hike. And uh, this is where we decided to go for a hike. Uh, this is Half Dome in uh, Yosemite uh, National Park. And uh, so you actually start down in the valley below this, and you work your way up onto that ridge, and then around the ridge up to the very top of this. Um, here's a picture of the last segment of it. And this is today, in the world today, apparently you have to schedule a time to go, and there's long lines and loads of people going up the final stretch. When we went, we were just about the only ones we could see. But there are cables, and you go up this last part hand over hand to get to the very top. There are also stories about uh, don't go up here if you see clouds in the sky because there might be lightning and it wouldn't be good to hold on to them, but we won't talk about that part of the story. Let's just say that we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, so this is a hike that uh, it's 8.2 miles, uh, 13 kilometers to get up to the top of it. Um, it's a rise of almost a mile straight up. Um, and in case you're wondering, yeah, you do come down again. So that's another 8.2 miles to come down. Turns out coming down isn't a lot easier than coming going up because you're always having to break and push back and... And yeah, again, you go down all this way. Um, a part of this journey, um, when we got up to this to this point where you can see the last stretch, we had had enough. And uh, let's just say we didn't prepare in a lot of ways. We didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't bring enough food. We didn't bring enough drink. Uh, some of us weren't wearing footwear that was quite appropriate for, it was fashionable, yes, but it wasn't quite appropriate for such a hike. And as we got to this point, Karen said, I'm done. It's 400 feet vertical to get to the rest of the way up. We've already done 4,400 feet up, but she said, I'm done. Just can't do it. And we said, of course you can do it. We can do it. And we managed to get up to the top. And then, of course, it looked like clouds were coming in and there was going to be rain. So we stood there for a minute and we, we get a quick drink and we go back down. And we never did go to the edge and look over to see what it was like. This was really, in many ways, an impossible journey, right? And sometimes the goal of a journey, it does seem impossibly hard to reach. And for us, this hike up Half Dome stands as that. We think we should do that again someday. We were in our 20s. We thought, what's the big deal? We'll drive from San Francisco out there. It's hours drive each way. We'll just do it. We don't have such illusions uh, today or delusions of uh, whether or not we can pull that off. But sometimes in life, we encounter things like this, where we say, it's a tough journey, and I've gone a long ways, and I think I'm done. I just don't think I can go any farther. And, and I would love, as, as is a regular pattern, I would love to hear just thoughts from you. You can chat online, you can unmute, shout it out in the room. Winter times that we're in a journey, and somewhere in the journey, we say, I don't think I can go any farther. I think this is it. When do people say that? When might that happen? What are some thoughts? Running a marathon. Running a marathon. I, I, I've heard of the concept. Um, yeah, to run a marathon, I think, what an impossible journey. And people hit a wall and say, I'm done. 
When else could that happen in life? Yeah. Uh, the Iditarod. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't even. I mean, I can. I can at least imagine what a marathon takes. I can't imagine what the Iditarod takes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. What are other times in life, other kinds of situations where we say, "Yeah, this seemed like a good journey, but I think I've hit a point where I can't go on." Residency. Residency. We, uh, our, our daughter is going through medical residency, and there are times when she says, "I'm coming home to curl up and not get up again," <laughs> right? And it just seems like this is too much. Yeah. When else could this happen in life? Yeah. Graduation from university, yeah. It's getting closer for you, though. It doesn't seem so impossibly far away, but yeah, there are times when we look at it and say it's just not going to happen. I I can remember being in elementary school thinking, high school? Graduate from high school? I can't imagine. I, I can always dream that I would be driving by the high school when classes were in session, and I wouldn't have to be in school. And I would think, what a day, but it's so far away. I can't imagine it. And I have to keep going through this. It's half done, not half done. <laughs> yes, it's, well, sometimes we are just half done. Um, sometimes relationships are like this, right? Sometimes parenting is like this. And, and it's like, I don't know. I'm not sure this journey isn't quite what I thought. Sometimes our own journey and our own lives and and something that we say, here's a vision I have for myself. And partway through we say, I just don't think it's possible. This is a journey that is just more than I can do. And uh, the closer I get to some things, uh, yeah, so when people are isolated and no encouragement... Yeah, that's so real, especially in COVID. There have been many times when I've planned an event, a trip, something like that, and it seems like such a good idea when it's off in the distance. And the closer I get to it, the more uncertain I get until I say, why did I think this was a good idea? When we face things that are like an impossible journey, there are all sorts of temptations. And temptations that say, let's just give up. Let's just pretend we did it. Let's buy the postcard and and not actually go, right? Let's find somebody to blame and say it's their fault that this is so hard, right? We have all sorts of things. I want to think today about this idea that sometimes God calls us on a journey that is impossibly hard. That he wants us to go a direction and a place and partway in, we say, I don't think I can keep going. And we certainly have record of people in the Bible saying this. And so we're in good company when we get there. And perhaps you're there today. Perhaps somebody you know uh, that you love is in a relationship and you say, I don't think I can go another step in this journey, uh, in another aspect. What we want to do is ask for God's help. For us to understand his presence, his will, and his ways. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We are so thankful that you are God, that you have all strength and all wisdom and all power and all knowledge. And we confess, Father, that we do not. 
And sometimes we are discouraged. And we think, I just can't take another step. We think this is just an impossibly hard journey. And we look for a way to avoid it or to get out of it. And Father, for any who are facing that today, and for ones we love who are facing that today, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would do a work in our hearts today. That you would help us to put our hope in you, to wait upon the Lord. That we would soar on wings with eagles, because we can't on our own. So we ask that you teach us today. Do your work in us. Thank you that you will answer that prayer, that you are present with us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Encourage us today. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, The title today is Beyond the Mess and Chaos. We're in Revelation 7. Um, And so the question, why in Revelation? I was looking back over uh, sermons and and, uh, services over the life of the church. And I realized in the early days of the church, Every time that there was a fifth Sunday in a month, you know, so five Sundays in a month, and it happens generally four times a year. Every time there was a fifth Sunday, we would stop and say, let's talk about the vision again. Let's put it in front of us and, and be refreshed by that. And uh, turns out we stopped doing that several years ago, and I don't know why. Um, and now, is anybody bothered by the fact that this isn't a fifth Sunday? Um, so it's the last Sunday of a month. It's not a fifth Sunday. We missed it in January. Another will come in May. And when I realized this, I thought, I'm not waiting until May. This is a key thing for us to step back and say, so God, why are we on the path that we're on? Because sometimes it's hard. And so we look at that today. We're Revelation 7. We'll talk more about these drawings in a few minutes uh, thankfully, Karen is back to help with those. And uh, But let me say a word about Revelation. I do want you to have the text in front of you. I will also have it on the screen. Um, but let me say a word about reading the book of Revelation. Um, famous line says, I would turn back if I were you. Um, it's, it's a tough book, right? The incredible diversity of views, right? In order to make sense of Revelation... People talk about the preterist view, the futurist, historicist, idealist, some sort of mixture, put star in front of millennium, and then you've got lots of different options. I'm not going to try to explain any of these. (laughs) I'm not going to try to pick any of them or argue for any of them. I really want to step back and say, given all this diversity, what is it that we can see and understand? But I do want to say a few things about reading the Bible. Some big ideas for understanding the Bible. This statement was so profound for me when I first heard it. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It can't mean something that that we say, well, you know, the the original writer of this, well, they didn't understand, but now I understand what they couldn't understand because of something new and a new perspective. And the Bible can't mean that. Now, it can have value in ways that it didn't then, but the objective meaning of the text is what was intended in this text. The Bible can't mean what it didn't mean, And so a key part of understanding the Bible is to step back into the original readers, the original context, and say, well, what's this symbol mean to them? Not what does this symbol mean today? So that's one of the first things, is to step into their world. The second is to pay attention to genre, the kind of writing it is. And so, for example, poetry and narrative and parable are three really different things. So in poetry... 
we read that God has an arm. And we know God doesn't have an arm, right? We read in poetry that God has eyes and he has ears. And he doesn't have eyes and ears. What he has is power and strength. He has the ability to see and to to observe and to hear and, and to speak. But even that's metaphorical. But when it's poetry, we don't worry about the fact is, well, what's his arm attached to? Does he have a body, right? What's, we don't worry about that if it's poetry. But if it's narrative, then we say, okay, there was a man named Abraham. And we read the story about something that happened in history. But if it's a parable, we say it's got different rules than that. We don't have to worry about where this person was born and, and, and what's their background. We're, we just know that what matters is what we're told. So it matters what the genre is in order to understand it. So one of the the challenging things about Revelation is this genre called the apocalyptic. Let me just say a couple of things about it. One is it's got lots of symbols and metaphors and special numbers. And there's all sorts of debate about what these things mean and whether or not they're literal or are they symbols. So lots of debate. But in apocalyptic literature, we know there will be a lot of that. There's a really high contrast between good and evil. Right? It takes good and makes it super good, and it takes evil and makes it super evil. There's not much nuance in apocalyptic, and especially apocalyptic literature. It reveals the invisible reality that's beyond the visible world. It says, here's what you can see, but there is something else going on that is even more real that's behind it. So we're going to step in to see some of this today. Say a little bit of the context. We saw a couple of weeks ago this idea of the day of the Son of Man. The day of the Son of Man will be a time that will bring judgment on evil. And, and from the Bible, we know that sometimes, or one of the purposes of this judgment, is to promote repentance, to, to get people to turn, to recognize this is a bad road that I'm on, and to cause people to think twice and to say, I need to change my direction. And another purpose of judgment is to bring justice, to bring and take what's wrong and make it right, and that there will be consequences for people, uh, even as Marita prayed today, for people who are behaving in ways that are so wrong, there will be consequences. In Revelation, there's just a couple of symbols that stand out for judgment. Uh, One is these seals, a scroll that has these seals on it that keeps it from being opened, there's seven seals, and we see that in, in chapter 6 to 8. There's seven trumpets, that when a trumpet is played, then more of this judgment is, uh, is made visible and is brought out. And then there's seven bowls that are poured out. Um, and all of these include wars and disasters and loss of life and troubles. Today, we spend some time looking at uh, this intersection between six of the seals and the seventh seal. Well, I mean, just this part that sets it up, when we hear about all these terrible things, a question comes to mind for the people and for us is who can live through this? When we look at what happens in the world and we say, if the judgment of God comes in the midst of all of this, who's going to survive it? And this was the question. It says, and the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, Call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? Who can withstand it? Right? Who can withstand is this great question? And I'm convinced that chapter 7 answers that question. Who can withstand 
the day of great trouble that comes as God's wrath is revealed. So here we are, Revelation 7. We're going to look at two parts, verses 1 to 8 and then 9 through 17. Revelation 7, 1 says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing in the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So stop there for a second. Just to, to provide a few observations and perspectives in this. Based on what this says, it seems that what we've done is now stepped back before God's full wrath is revealed. Uh, the, 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 the wind blowing, maybe it's literal, but what's clear is that it is a symbol of God's wrath. And we have these four angels who are these agents of God's judgment. And, and this other angel says, wait, don't do it yet. Hold back until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Don't carry out all of this yet until we put a seal on them. And then we're told the number is 144,000. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the list of debates, uh, the list of positions, the ways to understand this. But let me say one thing that I think is very clear, and that is this in no way limits how many people can be saved or can live in the presence of God forever. Whatever else it means, it's not saying you'd better hurry up because space is limited. It does not mean that, right? But what then we go on to see is he says, here's the 144,000, and he shows us that they have come from these tribes. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun, Joseph and Benjamin. And for those who are interested, there are some wonderful puzzles in this list. It is far from simple to say this is the 12 tribes of Israel. Because one's missing and one seems to be counted twice. And it's a different order than usual. It's all sorts of wonderful puzzles in it. One of the perspectives that helps me is perhaps this is like assembling an army and saying to all the people of God, you need to provide some people. But this is an army that loves their enemies rather than fights them. This is an army of people who who give up their lives because they're following a Savior who gave up his. And so we get this number of, of 12 tribes and there are 12,000 in each tribe. We get 12 times 12 times 1,000. Certainly this is connected with the symbolic completeness. What exactly it means, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I just don't know for sure. But this is what I do see. God said, hold back on judgment until I conceal my people. And so this is a powerful image that actually was expressed in Ezekiel. This is an image of being protected from God's wrath. So listen to these words from Ezekiel 9. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city 
each with a weapon in his hand. And he says, the wrath of God is coming on this city. Then the Lord called the man clothed in linen, who had the writing kit at his side, and said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. He says, go put a mark, go put a seal on the forehead of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Put a mark in their foreheads. Same thing that's happening in Revelation. So we read this in in the New Testament too, a, a seal that is relationship and a promise of blessing. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God said that he set his seal of ownership on us, a seal of relationship, who says, this one is mine. And this seal is guaranteeing what is to come. So when we are sealed, we are sealed as God saying, there is relationship here, you are mine. Not in an ownership in a bad sense, but an ownership in which God says, I am committed to you forever. And this is a guarantee. It's a promise of what I will give you. In 2 Timothy, the image is used again. and This is in a a time of false teaching that seemed to cause so much trouble. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So the seal here expresses a position of God to his people. The Lord knows those who are his. God will guard his people. And it's an expression of people to God that everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So this is his people will follow him. So this image of sealing is so important in the Bible of saying God is going to care for, to protect his people even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of his wrath, his judgment. So in the midst of trouble, God's people are sealed and secured by God. Who can stand? The people who are sealed and secured by God. When God brings judgment on evil, he protects his people from his wrath. This is the promise of God. The days ahead and all sorts of debate, are they getting worse? Are they getting better? How much is it going to go up and down? Whatever might come, this is what we know. God has sealed his people. And he will protect them from his wrath. Now, God's people still experience trouble, right? This is not saying, and so you go around in a bubble and nothing bad ever happens to you, right? Because we still live in a world of decay. We still suffer for our own sin. We will still suffer for the sins of others. Yet here's what God says. You are mine. I will guard you and I will protect you in the day of wrath. Through all the trouble that we might encounter, we are sealed. God protects his people. And this is an expression of God toward us. This is the seal of God that says he will protect his people, who will guard his people for the promise. And God's people are called to be faithful to him. And this is the seal that goes the other direction that says, as we are sealed, we say we will follow our God. So in the midst of trouble, whatever the trouble might come and the wrath of God, God's people are sealed and secured by him. And nothing can get in the way of God's work and God's will. Now, verse 9 goes a bit further. 
So Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. I think the verses we saw before, verses 1 to 8, this is stepping back before the full wrath of God. Hold back, God says, on the wrath of God until I seal those who are my own. Here, I think now we're looking at a time after God's full wrath, and he says, here's the outcome. Here are the people. This uncountable multitude from every place of the earth. And they are doing what? They're standing. Remember the question that Revelation 6 asked? Who can stand? Who can withstand the same word? Who can stand? And he says, here are the people who are standing. And they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are in the presence of God. They're wearing these white robes and the palm branches, which probably means an expression of victory, that that God's will has been done, and, and they are there in his presence, standing as those who have been able to survive the days of great trouble. And how have they done it? They say, because we've been saved. It's salvation. It's not that we're better people, they say. It's not because we have endured better than others. It's because we have been saved Say, salvation belongs to our God, and salvation belongs to the Lamb. After God's full wrath, he says, here's what I want you to see. Imagine what it will be, because it is real and it is certain. This is a triumphant, diverse, global, and united community. Before God, giving praise to him, because they have been saved by God the Father and God the Son. One of the beautiful things about this image is that this is the fulfillment, the completion of a promise from way back in Genesis. The victory of the church becoming the promise of God because God said to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And he says, I'm doing it. I will do it. This is not at risk. This is not only if you can keep walking up that last stretch of the mountain. God says, I'm going to do this. This is guaranteed. I am going to bless all peoples through you. And so then we continue verse 11 in Revelation 7. After we had all these people from all the places of the earth worshiping God for their salvation, we read, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We're told the angels. It's just an amazing thing to think we have all the peoples that that God has rescued in salvation gathering together and worshiping and saying salvation belongs to our God and then the angels of heaven, they come and they join And they fall down on their faces and they worship. And it's not just some of them. We're told all the angels came to join in this. People started the worship and the angels responded. And they said, Amen. We agree. 
salvation belongs to God. And then they, they give this great praise of all that belongs to God. They say, so be it. Reminds me of the song that we sing. Heaven and earth will resound with his praise. Archangels and men falling down on their knees. And what an amazing picture of what is coming, what God has guaranteed, of the praise to him in heaven. Verse 13, then this this great question, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sometimes people imagine questions they'll ask God when they encounter him in heaven. And sometimes we wonder, what if he asks me a question? I think John's answer is a really good one. He says, so what was your view of the end times? (laughs) Sir, you know. (laughs) Right? You know. And he says, these are the ones who have come out of this great tribulation. Again, huge debate. What is it? But we know it's a time of trial a time of trouble, a time of the wrath of God. But in answer to this question, who can stand? Who can stand? Here we see the answer is, from the previous verses, all those who are sealed by God. Here it's those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people who are forgiven by Jesus through faith in Jesus. Who can stand are those who stand in Christ. And because of this, then verse 15, therefore... They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And to you sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. An amazing picture of these people that because they are there sealed by God, standing there because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. There are two different ways to refer to the temple. One is to say the area of the temple that includes the courtyard around it. And another is to say the temple proper. And this is the proper part of the temple, the the narrow sense of it. That if you weren't Jewish, if you weren't a convert to Judaism, you were not welcome. And yet here we see all nations are worshiping and serving in the place where only the Jewish and the Jewish converts were allowed to be. And yet we're told people from every nation and language and tribe and people are there serving in his temple. And this beautiful image that God will shelter them with his presence. Right? This is the glory of God that, that it's not just a seal. Now it's, they are just surrounded by. They are swimming the ocean of the glory of God. He says he will shelter them with his presence. So of course there's no more trouble that they will encounter there. And why is it for? What, what's, what's, what's the foundation for this? Well, it's because of the lamb. The lamb who ironically has become the shepherd. And he leads them to springs of living water. And it's because of God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is far more than comforting people in trouble. It's to remove the cause of the trouble. 
we see here that God is going to fulfill his promise. There will be people of all people groups united in joy-filled victory with God forever. This is fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Through you all, the nations will be blessed. And here it is. God says, I've accomplished it. From, from every group of people, there will be people there who are blessed and who bless God. And this is joined with the praise of all the angels from all people groups in diverse unity together. And all of this is by the work of the Father and the Son. In answer to the question of who can stand through challenging days, especially challenging days of the wrath of God, and Revelation 7 says, well, in the midst of trouble, God's people are sealed and secured by God. And God has promised and will fulfill his promise that people of all people groups will be united in joy-filled victory with God forever. The big idea is that God's people in Christ are sealed and secured by Christ, by God today, and will one day join in this global, diverse, joy-filled, and triumphant family of God forever. So, what's it look like for us to live with that? This brings us to the drawing. Thinking of a journey from acting like an infant to being mature. And all of us were one day like this little child, shaking the edge of the stroller and crying and shouting, right? And and the hope, the goal is that someday we become someone who can comfort such a child, right? To go from being one who acts like an infant to one who is mature. And, and of course, this applies to us as individuals, but I think it could also apply to any church. And this can apply to the church, Right? The church, the people of God, can act like infants. <laughs> and we're to grow up into maturity. And so the question is, what's this journey look like? So what's the journey like if, if you have had the uh, privilege of being a parent or if you uh, have had the, um, the privilege of growing up? Uh, what's it like? Well, this is one thing that is not a very good hope to have. is to say, well, the child goes on for a time and then a miracle occurs, and they act like adults. Now, sometimes we dream that this will happen, right? Oh, no, just someday. It's just going to magically happen, and they'll be adults, right? But that's not how it works, right? The way it works, it's a journey of stumbling growth, of up and down, of, of learning to adult, if you can use that as a verb now, to learn to, to behave more and more like a mature person. And this is the call to the church. And so this image is used in Ephesians 4 talking about the church. Then we will no longer be infants. And this is what we can so easily be as the church. I mean, as the church of any particular congregation, but of all God's people, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. He says we need to grow from being infants, tossed here and there, and whatever the latest teaching is, the latest technique, we've got to do that. And say so we need to grow into maturity, in every respect becoming like Christ. And so Jesus says, here's the call to us as individuals, to us as the church. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Put this ahead of everything else, he says. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And sometimes, this sounds like such an obvious, direct thing to do, but sometimes, I confess, those simple commands are an impossible journey. It is too hard. Right? To, to seek first his righteousness. I don't know what your battle is like overcoming sin. I go through times and I say, okay, I'll try harder next time. And yeah, you know, we'll try another technique and we, we can make this work. And then discover, no, you know what? This is so deeply embedded in me. It's a mountain too high to climb. I can't do this. Right? This, this idea of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and it's like, okay, here's a technique. We can make this happen. And I realize, no, this is an impossible hill to climb. There is not a technique that solves this. It's people pray and pray. And we say, but it's an impossible hill to climb. It's not happening. And growing a glorious people of Christ. To say, this is what the church ought to be. And yet, so often we struggle and say, but what is the church really? And, and we struggle, saying it's an impossible journey. In this impossible journey, I think Jesus has said, take heart, let me show you what it is that I will do. He shows us a holy people in white robes washed in Christ's blood. He says, that is the church and I am doing it. And I will do it. A, a church that is people from every people group on earth. A church that is in the presence of God, worshiping and serving him. As many as the troubles are today, he says, take heart, because I am doing this work. And in that impossible journey, oh, the joy to be a part of this emerging work. And yet it can feel like such an impossible journey. And so the Spirit says to John, give the people this message. That God's people in Christ have hope because we are sealed and secured by God today and we will one day join in the global, diverse, joy-filled and triumphant family of God forever. And because of that, we are invited, we are called to a journey, often stumbling growth, but a journey of growth to become what God has promised we will be. The application is two things. The first is to keep this hope strong and clear. Uh, a statement that I found this week in, in preparing for this uh, to say here's what the Spirit wanted to do in Revelation 7 and that is to encourage every believer to persevere in this life today in the ways of God. It can feel like I'm not making progress. It can feel like I have made a little bit of progress. The rest of the mountain is more than I can do. I can't go another step. I'm just going to sit down. And the Spirit says can you see it? Can you see this promised work of God? You've been sealed by God. You're secured by him. And he has promised that you will be a part of this. We are sealed by God. He owns us and we show allegiance to him. And he will fully accomplish his promised, beautiful community. And so having this image out there is something we're told helped Jesus. We're told this. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Here's what he did. For the joy set before him, he endured. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured. He said, I can see what's out there. And this is what 
what the image from the Spirit from Jesus through John the Apostle was, is to say, can you look ahead for the joy that is out there, for the work that God has guaranteed that he will do? And given that joy, we can endure. We can persevere. We're to keep this hope strong and clear and remind each other of it. When I was uh, working toward graduation, uh, the song Pump and Circumstance, the standard thing that gets played over and over and over and over again at a commencement. But it's like, I want to hear that song again, just to remind me that sometimes people actually do finish this journey, <laughs> right? And this is what we need to do for each other, is to set that hope out there and to say, God is doing this work, and it is for sure. And then we're to let our certain future shape our lives today. And this is where the vision that God gives of the church is people from every nation and tribe and people and language. And I love the fact that it is with a visible diversity. It's not merely visible diversity, but John could look and see there's lots of different people groups here. And a few things it's not. It is not. And this John could have described it this way. In fact, I would have expected the Bible to describe it this way, and it does not. It does not say, and here are God's chosen people surrounded by everybody else. Right? And it could have done that. It says, here are my people that I chose, and look at all the people who have come because of them. But John doesn't describe that. He says, I see all these people gathered together around the, the throne without the distinction of, no, you're an outsider because you're secondary. Not the case. John doesn't describe it as a group of people where all their differences are past. Now there's no male or female, Jew or Gentile. He doesn't say that here. He says, no, I see, I hear languages, I see the differences. It's not all these people with differences removed. And this is perhaps a little bit of a stretch, but I think it is fair with scripture, is that he doesn't look at it and say, oh yeah, and, and over there, that's where the, the, the people from China are, and, and the people from you know this group, they're over here, and, and I have all these different homogeneous units, and they're kind of tacked together. Right? It's not that. He says, I looked and I saw, right? And I saw these people who were loving across the differences. They were in relationship across the differences. And sometimes we see this in different churches. Then we say, well, separate but equal is okay. And we say, we can have churches for people in this category and that category. And it's not a terrible thing, but I think it's not the picture that we get of God's people in heaven. And sometimes this can actually happen in the same church, where you have people who are different from each other, worshiping together in the same community. And yet within that, we still kind of cluster according to what we're comfortable with. And... I'm convinced that the call of God is, is for a loving, diverse unity in Christ. Not things attached to each other, sitting next to each other, but keeping a distance. We are to shape our lives around this loving, diverse unity in Christ that celebrates our similarities and our differences. That doesn't say, isn't it wonderful how we're all alike? And yeah, there's some differences too. It celebrates both. When we see this, this is a beautiful picture of God's design. And it is evidence of his supernatural work. One of the things that I've been trying to do is to expand my group of uh, authors that I read. And so one who, who actually um, uh, has, has helped to expand me from Hispanic background, he, he highlights in this section that this is one of the greatest signs of God's work in today's world, is when we see this. 
right? And, and I can appreciate that that's a, a perspective that I often don't have being primarily from the experience of always being in the majority. And I think, well, it's great for others to be along in the journey. And he brings a voice that helps me see that when we genuinely celebrate both what we share and what makes us different, and we don't have priorities, this is one of the greatest signs that God is at work. It's not just a human activity. And so what do we do? We want to let this certain future shape our lives today. So we as a church choose to pursue both unity and diversity. That if we don't pursue diversity, we will inevitably give in to the gravity that just pulls us back to uniformity. Because that's just the natural thing for us to do. So we choose to pursue both unity and diversity. We choose the healthy discomfort of giving preference to others. And we do this in uh, trying to do this in a lot of ways, in singing our songs, in language that are different for each of us. This is an effort to give preference to others. And I'll be honest, it's harder for me to worship when I sing a song that is in a language I don't really understand. It's harder. Yet, it's a beautiful thing when, when the Spirit moves and, and, and I can express praise to God in words that I didn't know before. It's a beautiful thing. But it isn't as natural as hearing that song that the words are just obvious to me and just now my heart sings whenever I hear it. So why do it? Well, I do it and we do it to express love for people for whom this is finally the chance they have to just worship without the struggle of another language. Of, of my heart just expressing it, right? We, we choose to, to give preference to others. And we're trying to learn this in lots of ways. Everything from how we do a meal together to how we run a, a church meeting to how we find people who are gifted to help us in so many ways. We choose the healthy discomfort of giving preference to others. We anticipate being blessed as we gain what God has given to others. That when we discover, oh, God's given you a gift that he didn't give me, and what a beautiful thing. And yet sometimes I say, oh, that's different. I'm not sure I like that. But we anticipate the goodness of that. And we anticipate being a blessing as we share what God has given to us. That every one of us brings uniquenesses that is a gift for God's people. And every one of us need what other people bring that's different from us. So we pursue these things because this is what God is doing in his church and will be a beautiful picture of the church like a living body where the parts work together in perfect harmony, doing very different things in very different ways to make the body work. So as we set our hope on the full experience of this vision in heaven, we choose to pursue it, even though it's a stumbling journey. And I stand in front of you and say, I am one of the, the, the greatest stumblers. The number of ways that I find, I assume that my way is normal. I, I, I become impatient. I, I, I struggle to, to want to understand things that are very different from my own. And I stumble. And yet we pursue this in stumbling growth. And the reality is we do this even though every one of us continues to wrestle. 
with sin and selfishness and my own made-up word of groupishness, where I'm not selfish for me, but I'm selfish for my group of people, and I want to be sure we're taken care of. And, and there's good in that. And yet, that so often can divide us. The call for the church today is to grow toward this vision of revelation. And in my past, I believed this picture. That when we die and go to heaven, the miracle occurs and God just makes us work great together. And so I don't have to do anything about it now. right? He'll take care of that part later. And I'm convinced that is not his intention. He says, pray this way. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we should be doing today what it is that he says are the ways of heaven. So this is not a good model. right? Rather, it's this journey of stumbling growth. Found this quote not long ago that I was so encouraged by because I was surprised where it came from. John Stott, uh, uh, speaker and writer um, in, in England, said the statement, Every homogeneous church should take active steps to broaden its fellowship in order to demonstrate visibly the unity and variety of the church. Uh, that, that really captures this idea that says God wants a diverse unity of his body. That's what he's doing in heaven. And so we should pursue that because we want the ways of heaven to be happening on earth. God's people in Christ are sealed and secured by God today. And so we have hope in the trouble that we encounter, even hope if the trouble gets far worse. And we will one day join in this global, diverse, joy-filled, and triumphant family of God forever. And so we are called to a journey of stumbling growth to become what God has promised we will be. So the impossible journey. We say, yeah, this is great, but it can be hard. The drive that's built into me, in part from my culture, for productivity says, but that'll take longer. That won't be as efficient. (laughs) It's like, yeah. And who says it's supposed to be productive and efficient? (laughs) Good values, but they're not supreme values. They're not God's supreme values. He says, I'm doing something that sometimes looks pretty slow. What are the temptations? For me, it is a temptation to say there must be an easier path. There must be a way just to, to, to just, let's just get it done and pick something and go forward rather than giving preference to each other. Sometimes I'm tempted to say there must be a smaller mountain. (laughs) Do we really have to go to the top of Half Dome? That's challenging, right? What if God's calling is for an impossibly hard journey? And I'm convinced that's his calling for his church and for this church. I'm convinced it's also the case for us in so many areas of relationships that we're in, of the journey God has called us individually He calls us to impossibly hard things that we can do only by his strength. And so to to adjust the words of Hebrews for the joy set before us and the joys along the way, we stand in the power of God for the vision of God and sealed by his spirit. We're going to pray together in a minute, but I want to just allow for uh, a time of silence for reflection and for your prayer and listening to the Spirit. So let's pray.
we'll continue in prayer. What I'd like for us to do is to pray together the Lord's Prayer um, and then just continue in uh, a time of open prayer if you'd like to. Feel free to pray out loud, to unmute online, to um, to, to pray out in, in the group here a language that you choose um, and God hears silence just as well. Uh, but if you would be open to it, uh, let's pray together the Lord's Prayer and I've highlighted that phrase, that your kingdom come, your will be done. So let us... Uh, Pray these words together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As some suggestions as we pray, thanking God for calling us, thanking God for his work so far, and asking him to help us to grow into this vision he has of his people. Father in heaven, I thank you that we can pray. And even as we pray now together, Spirit, would you lead us? And would you work in our hearts even as you hear our hearts? Father in heaven, we thank you for your beautiful vision of humanity, of people from every nation and tribe and language and people that are brought together as one in a loving unity across great diversity to show your your wonderful wisdom of, of how to put together a beautiful community. We thank you for the work that you were doing, for the privilege to be a part of uh, your church. And I thank you for the privilege to be a part of this church and the work that you were doing. And I thank you for the work that you have done. And we long for it to continue for us to, to grow and becoming more and more like what you have told us is your plan. We thank you for other churches who who join in this vision and for the the call for churches to to join together across great differences and yet together in Christ. I pray that you would teach us. By your spirit, you would enable us. Use this vision, Father, to renew our strength that we would continue in the path you've called us to because you have sealed us. Because you spread your canopy over us as your presence. And because you are doing this work that cannot be stopped. We give you praise because you are the God 
Father, Son, and Spirit who has brought about our salvation. And you are the one who is bringing us together as the body of Christ to share in a measure of this glory that is for us because of him. In his name we pray. Amen.